so thank you all for attending the Earthquake Science Center weekly seminar series. If you're new, welcome. If you'd like to be added to our email distribution group, please send us an email. Seminars are recorded and most of the talks are posted on our USGS Earthquake Science Center webpage. Closed captioning can be turned on by clicking on the CC icon and then the More tab at the top of the page. Attendees, please mute your mics and turn off your cameras until the Q&A session at the end of the talk. Submit your questions via the chat at any time or wait to turn on your camera and ask your question during the Q&A session. Okay, so then a few more announcements uh, for this week. So be sure to share your suggestions, comments, ideas, comments and ideas in the virtual totally anonymous ESC box. See your email for Shane for the link from Shane for the link. And also of note, we are moving away from passwords. So be sure to set your ATPIV password today or it will be reset for you. Um, so the deadline for that is today and thank you for resetting your password. Uh, join us on Thursday, February 29th, which is leap year at 6 p.m. to view the live stream of the USGS public lecture by our very own Sarah McBride. The talk is titled Using Communication Science to Communicate USGS Science. See the link in the chat or Google USGS public lecture series. And with that, we will start the recording and I'll pass it over to Jean Hardebeck, who will introduce today's speaker. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's really my pleasure to inter introduce Peter Shear. Um, he is from uh, the Institute of Geophysics and Planetary Physics at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego, uh, where I had the pleasure of doing a postdoc with Peter. Um, Peter has a really very broad range of seismology interests from global seismology imaging, um, imaging of the mantle, uh, through to looking at source properties of, of small earthquakes. Um, he has a, a very popular introductory introduction to seismology book, uh, and he's won um, a number of impressive awards, including the AGU Lehman Medal and uh, uh, being nominated for the National Academy of Science. Um, back uh, more than 20 years ago now, when when um, I was a postdoc with Peter, he was one of the first people who were developing workflows to deal with uh, big earthquake data sets to process, um, process basically full catalogs of Southern California or other regions um, to do earthquake relocations and to look at earthquake source processes, um, focal mechanisms, which was what we were working on together, and um, also uh, importantly stress drop. And he developed a technique to take a very large data set of small earthquakes and um, jointly uh, jointly separate out path and side effects from the source processes, from the um, source spectra. And that really revolutionized how people were thinking about computing stress drops for very large data sets. And um, so he's going to be talking today about uh, 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 using those sorts of techniques to look at the high frequency energy from small to moderate earthquakes. And I will turn things over to Peter. Thank you. And 
Okay, well, um, thank you, Gene. Uh, is that the right um, angle? I can't see my... Good, okay. Okay, well, uh, I don't know how um, many of you may um, know this, but I actually um, worked at the USGS for um, three years right out of um, college. And I worked, the first year was um, field um, geochemistry and petrology. And uh, that first summer, we did uh, a, a field work up at Mount Hood. I met um, Susan Green, who um, became my friend, and then um, later my wife. And she worked in um, um, the seismology uh, um, group, and you know she encouraged me to uh, um, transfer <clears throat> over to the seismology group. And I worked there for um, two years. I was trying to find a um, dignified um, photograph of my time there. I <laughs> was not successful. So, uh, let me get this to, I guess I have to, I'm doing the arrows, which worked before. What's not working here? Um, Help. Ah, <laughs> uh, oops. Yeah, I'm not sure what's different. When I tried it before, it advanced. Okay. Okay. Uh, try that again. Okay. So um, here's a photograph that I found, and uh, that's me, um, believe it or not. Yeah, I know. It's very strange to see. And that's uh, Susan. And then for um, the youngsters in the crowd, that's a phone. And uh, this is a um, floppy. You know, this was um, before they even had the small uh, floppies. I don't know if any. Anyway, uh, and then, uh, but when I say um, I, I put um, a, a office in a, a quotes, because it was just a corner of this large room, it was a shared room. But the uh, um, thing that I enjoyed is there was this uh, computer there, actually. It was one of the first um, desktop computers, I guess. Um, at this time, um, <clears throat> HP was um, the dominant uh, um, uh, um, player, <clears throat> I guess, in small uh, scientific uh, computers. So uh, I use that. Okay, well, enough of that. So at the time, uh, um, you know, these are some of the people that I remember um, down the hall, and uh, there were more, and um, I um, I see um, Wayne Thatcher there, and I realize, oops, I forgot to have him there. Uh, anyway, one of the things you may um, okay, he was he he wasn't around. Okay. Anyway, so I don't know how many of these names are familiar to you. One thing you may notice is they're all um, male. And I think that's one of um, the welcome changes that we've seen in our field. Uh, 
anyway, um, you know, these people were all um, nice to me. But what I want to talk about in order to kind of um, set up what I um, will be presenting today is there was this uh, um, issue that was um, going around at the time that had to do with observations that when you looked at high frequency ground accelerations, there seemed to be kind of a um, um, maximum um, frequency at which they would be observed. This was called uh, um, F-max at the time. Um, and Tom Hanks, who's right there now, uh, wrote a couple of papers about this that are, you know, extremely well cited. So, you know, this was, uh, uh, you know, clearly something um, that people cared about. And then uh, there was also um, this paper um, a, a few years after that by um, John Anderson and Sue Huff that also talked about this um, issue. And I also have a connection to John because he was my advisor my first year at Scripps and uh, Sue Huff was um, also um, a graduate student contemporary of mine. Okay, so um, what do we mean when we uh, um, talk about this lack of um, high frequency energy? So if you have a uh, um, pulse from a um, from an earthquake and you compute the um, Fourier transform and um, you plot it on a log-log scale, which is um, generally the standard when you're doing source studies, then you have this flat part that is related to um, the moment of the event and then uh, what we call um, corner frequency, which is inversely related to um, a, a pulse width that falls off like this. And that's the spectrum in um, displacement and in um, the Brune model, which is still kind of um, the standard source model, this fall off is at um, frequency of the minus two. But of course, when you go to velocity, then um, you multiply by F. And uh, when you go to acceleration, uh, you have another um, factor of F. So this thing um, rotates. So what you then should see in acceleration is it should be flat out to um, out, um, to high frequencies. But what um, um, Tom showed, and in this case, this is from a very famous record of the San Fernando earthquake. When you look at um, the acceleration um, spectrum, you do indeed see this flat part, but then it uh, falls off in this case at um, frequencies higher than about um, 10 to 20 hertz or so. And uh, he suggested, you know, there were two possibilities here. One is that it is a um, source effect. And there was some um, speculation at the time there might actually be kind of a um, um, minimum size of earthquake or um, size of asperity or something like this. This was a source effect. Or it could be due to uh, the site. Um, and in particular, if you had strong seismic attenuation um, near the surface, that could also um, remove the high frequencies. And it was that. Um, it was that um, a second possibility that uh, um, the paper by Anderson and Huff um, um, suggested was what 
um, was going on. So you see in their abstract here, they say that the results, at least the data they looked at, were um, consistent with an attenuation model in which, uh, you know, Q is um, low in the very shallow crust. And that result was um, supported by some of um, the borehole seismometer results. I was involved in um, one of these with uh, um, Rick Astor at ANZA, but then also uh, uh, Rachel Abercrombie analyzed um, the Cajon Pass uh, borehole. And these results showed you have um, very low um, Q in these um, uh, near surface layers, such that a lot of high frequency um, radiation will be removed. But I, I think although this seems to be the case, there's also, it's not clear um, how much of it is due to um, the near surface queue and how much of it is um, due to the source. And I think we still um, um, today um, need to um, deal with the fact that um, there's always going to be uh, a trade-off between um, how much of um, high frequencies you think um, are from the source versus those that are uh, removed from the near surface uh, um, up, up structure. So the model that we're um, um, looking at is what we um, record from the source um, is always going to have to travel through the near surface uh, when you have um, a surface site and that's going to remove some of um, high, uh, some of the high frequencies from the source that you're going to have um, to put back in if you want to get the true source uh, spectrum um, and well so if we go back to this plot, we just need to know, uh, okay, if we want the true source spectrum, how much of these um, high frequencies are going to have to put um, uh, back in. So now I want to switch uh, gears a bit. And as uh, Gene uh, mentioned, one of the things I've been involved with is trying to do um, analyses of large data sets to um, you know, look at um, a lot of earthquakes. And if you want to look at a lot of earthquakes, then you have to look at um, small earthquakes because they're by far um, the dominant um, number of earthquakes. And small earthquakes are more uh, um, challenging to um, constrain because we don't have anything other than um, the seismograms. So all the information that we know about for small earthquakes is going to have to come from um, the seismograms. So there are uh, two kind of key earthquake uh, parameters that we think, you know, we might be able to obtain. The first is um, the moment that I'm sure you're all familiar with. It is um, uh, proportional to the product of the area times the displacement, but the moment won't um, discriminate between where, where you have large slip on a small fault or small slip on a large fault. So we need um, something else, and uh, that something else is um, um, the stress drop, which is um, the change of stress. And 
the most um, common assumption that's made in this model is to assume a um, circular crack because um, we don't know any better. So in that case, there is an analytical expression for the um, stress drop. It's um, proportional to um, the displacement over the um, radius, or if you plug in the equation for um, the moment, you can get it into um, this form. Okay, now if we go back to this um, pulse, the area under the pulse is how we get the um, moment. This is um, zero frequency response. And then the pulse width then is generally related to uh, uh, the size of the fault or um, R in the case of a um, circular fault. But because stress drop is um, uh, uh, fundamentally a um, static uh, parameter, in other words, you know, even if you have a slow slip event, you you would be able to say that it has a um, stress drop. If we're going to get stress drop from uh, the seismic um, records, then we have to make certain assumptions about the source. We have to have a model of um, the dynamics of the source. And this was started by um, Jim Brune um, and others, um, uh, Madariaga. Uh, this is from work that um, Yoshi Kaneko um, did. You know, these are dynamic rupture um, simulations. And from that, then, you can get stress drop from um, um, the observations, but it's this rather um, complicated um, procedure, and you have to make um, assumptions about um, the dynamics of uh, the source. However, um, this all um, depends on that when you measure um, the corner frequency from the spectrum that you've already um, corrected for um, Q. In other words, we're assuming as a starting point, we have the true source um, spectrum. Then you also have to have the correct uh, theoretical model, which affects um, the um, K that you see here. Um, and also uh, you have to have complete averaging over um, the focal sphere because the um, theoretical results show that even in the case of a circular crack, you have um, directivity effects that are going to cause um, the corner frequency to vary as a function of azimuth. Okay, so now to kind of um, jump ahead, we used this approach in order to uh, uh, make uh, uh, to analyze stress drop for Southern California earthquakes. This was work with Egil Hauksen in um, 2006. And uh, I used a method called um, spectral decomposition that Gene talked about. And I'll have a little more to say about that, but the idea is that we can um, separate out the source term from um, the path on the site terms in order um, to isolate the source part. Um, and then um, you fit the corner frequencies and um, you see uh, this map of stress drops. And this is um, colored. You can see the blues are the higher stress drops 
the reds are the lower stress drops. There's a huge amount of scatter that's visible as um, the uh, speck lane there, but also you can see there's sort of these large scale coherent um, patterns in um, the average stress drops. So for example, in the transverse ranges, it's more blue, higher stress drops here in the salt and trough, it's uh, red, more low stress drops. So, uh, you know, you might ask, well, is this real or is it some kind of um, uh, artifact? Maybe we didn't um, fully correct for a, a Q. So, for example, if um, salt and trough we know is more attenuating than other regions, so uh, that, that's going to tend to remove high frequencies. And, you know, we tried to do a Q correction, but maybe we didn't add enough of high frequencies back in, and that's showing up now as um, lower stress drops. So the first question we have to ask, is this real? And then uh, um, the second one would be, okay, if it's a source effect, um, why should um, earthquakes here on average have um, higher stress drops than they do over here or over here? Okay, well, um, since then, there have been some studies that have kind of cast doubt on um, the accuracy or the reliability of um, stress drop estimates. So. I started working with Rachel Abercrombie a number of years ago, and we um, compared the 2006 results to results that she had for um, the Cajon Pass um, borehole. And if you plot um, one versus um, the other, you see here there's not very, not not very much correlation there. Uh, and there was a study a few years ago on a, um, a global scale. I don't have time uh, to talk about this, but a student, Mapatina um, Allman and I worked on um, a um, global stress drop analysis that um, was based on a similar spectral decomposition approach. And then uh, when uh, Neely et al. tried to um, compare their um, time domain um, approach to this to her results, and you just see a just a large amount of uh, um, scatter there. And they argued essentially it means that you can't um, trust <laughs> these um, stress drops. And then I think also a cause for concern is that studies, even the same study, often show um, puzzlingly large. Um, changes in stress drop. So this was um, a study in um, Japan that used um, a similar approach to spectral decomposition. And you can see, you know, you see these um, uh, variations, but here in the, the southwest part of um, Japan, the uh, uh, stress drops on average are about um, a factor of 10 um, larger. And, you know, that um, may be real, but, you know, it seems um, um, somewhat surprising, I think, that you would have such a large change, um, you know, along um, the Japan uh, chain like this. And then uh, some work that um, Daniel Trugman did with me a few years ago in Southern California, we were trying to um, follow up on the 2006 study by looking in more 
um, detail at some regions and doing um, a separate analysis of those regions. And two of the regions he looked at were um, aftershocks of uh, landers and um, Hector Mine earthquakes. These were large magnitude seven earthquakes out in the Mojave. And uh, the thing that's somewhat surprising is that, well, I mean, there's a lot of scatter. You always see a lot of scatter in these stress drop studies, but when you compare Landers to Hector Mine, there's about um, a factor of four um, change. And again, that seems kind of surprising because these earthquakes, you know, were both out, you know, they're not that far away. You'd think that um, uh, uh, the tectonics um, should be about the same. So why would there be um, a factor for change in the trust drops? Okay, so that um, um, motivates kind of a re-examination of this question. What uh, can we um, believe in these trust drop estimates and how can we make progress? And we have to uh, recognize that our um, um, theories always have these nice um, um, smooth looking um, spectra, but um, the actual observations are much more complicated. They show um, irregularities. Uh, the main thing, however, that I want to uh, um, emphasize is this um, Q corrections are um, tricky to make. So if we think about all of the things that could cause scatter in um, stress drop estimates. I've um, listed um, some of them here. I don't have time um, uh, um, to talk about them all. Uh, the, uh, what, what we've seen is that um, all of these things are either not that important or can be easily accounted for, except for this uh, um, final one, these uncertainties in um, the Q corrections that um, to some extent um, goes back to these uh, these uh, concerns about the source of F max that I talked about before. So just to uh, remind us, we need to have um, this path correction if we're going to obtain a true source um, spectrum. It's not hard to solve for um, Q models for uh, the mid to um, lower crust, but it's hard um, in the absence of um, borehole seismometers to resolve that uh, um, trade-off between um, the near surface site effect and the source. So uh, these um, path corrections are often performed by what we call Um, stuttering here. Try to relax. Em, 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 empirical Green's functions, and uh, just to remind us, they're called empirical because they're not really um, based on um, theory; they're just from the observations. And then the Green's function is just what we use in seismology to talk about the source-receiver response function. So the idea is that when you have a small quake that's near a large quake, then we can, to a first order, just assume that uh, they're near enough that um, the path correction is um, the same. And in sort of its um, idealized form, the small quake would be small enough 
that it's actually flat over um, the band that we're um, concerned with. And if that were the case, then all you'd have to do is um, um, subtract the um, small event um, response from the uh, large event response. So this is what we observe, but we know the small one should be flat. So we move that up and then um, we also move that up and then we should obtain the true uh, source. Um, the um, problem with this in practice is small events are never small enough that you can assume that they're flat. So then it turns out that the assumptions that you make about the small events are going to have an effect on what you are uh, uh, what you obtain for the um, large event. So uh, the work that I started with um, Rachel a few years ago, we thought, okay, we really need to uh, get in and see all the steps to understand what is um, going on. We wanted to compare the spectral decomposition that I'm more familiar with with um, the spectral uh, uh, ratio method. That, that she had used more. So we wanted to uh, use a uh, common uh, um, data set in order to do this analysis. So we chose uh, a dense aftershock um, cluster of the 1992 Landers earthquake. So uh, there were over 3,000 of these aftershocks in this um, six kilometer sighted uh, cube. And these are small, generally uh, having magnitudes of 0.5 to uh, 3.5. You can see, um, you know, the little red square there among um, the stations that we used. So we assume that it was small enough that we could uh, assume that um, the path of, uh, correction should all be the same. Okay, so the first method is uh, spectral decomposition. And the idea here is when you have a large data set, where uh, each earthquake is recorded by a lot of stations and each station records a lot of earthquakes, then there's um, redundancy in the system that should allow one um, to isolate a source spectrum from a receiver um, a, a station term essentially, and then um, a travel time dependent term to account for Q. Um, and it is um, completely empirical. You know, there's no um, physics in it at all. It's just a way to try to um, uh, um, try to isolate the source spectrum from all the other effects. But you can see uh, right away that there's a um, a fundamental ambiguity in that you could add something to the source spectrum and subtract it from um, the receiver spectrum and you'd have exactly the same answer. So it's really only a measure of um, the relative uh, uh, chain. Excuse me a second. So the source uh, um, spectra that we obtain are only um, relative and then we need to have some way uh, to calibrate this to get the true shape of the source uh, spectra. And the way that we um, did this in uh, the 2006 study was to uh, um, stack the raw source terms by um, moment 
And you can see that they don't um, look like what we think they should look like, and that the small ones are not flat, um, they uh, up, up go up. So what we do then is we solve for this, what we call an empirical correction spectrum, or ECS shown as the red curve, such that when we subtract it from all these, then we're gonna remove that ambiguity is the idea. And we then obtain a good fit to the um, model uh, predictions. So for the 2006 study, we assumed a model of a Brune um, spectrum that was uh, um, self-similar. By self-similar, I mean things just scale up and down with magnitude and uh, uh, such that um, the stress drop is constant. That's one of the assumptions that goes into um, self-similarity. So, you know, when we got a um, fit uh, like this, you know, we thought, yeah, well, that looks pretty good. So um, we're done, right? I mean, we, um, we have a model and it works. But what we found from um, the Landers study is that there's not just one model that will um, fit the, those curves. So here, uh, there's a non-self-similar uh, Brune fit in which um, stress drop grows um, linearly with um, moment. If you force the Brune fit to be self-similar, uh, you don't do as well. And you might say, okay, well, you know, there's enough of a um, misfit here that we would uh, um, reject that model. But it's not hard to come up with a self-similar model that fits if you're willing to change um, the high-frequency falloff rate. So in the Brune model, it's two, and in 2006, we forced it to be two. But in fact, you know, some models um, suggest you might have a lower high-frequency falloff rate. If you do that, you can preserve self-similarity. Or if you want your um, stress drop to be um, lower, you can um, force things to be uh, lower, you, um, or you can force things to be um, higher. The stress drop you assume for the, or that you force for the smaller earthquakes will tend to affect the degree of um, scaling with um, moment that you have. But the problem is, if you really want to, if, if you allow both well, uh, um, all of these things, in other words, um, the absolute stress drop of the smallest events, um, <clears throat> whether you have non-self-similar uh, uh, um, scaling, whether it's whether stress drop grows with moment and the high-frequency falloff rate. There's just too many uh, um, free parameters and there's too many ways that you can get a um, reasonable uh, fit. Uh, however, you can still trust um, the relative um, changes in uh, stress drop. In other words, the high stress drop regions still are, even though you don't know um, the absolute uh, um, level of stress drop, they're still showing that those regions are radiating more high frequency energy than the regions that have the lower stress drops. How am I doing on time? Okay, so then, um, the second approach is this uh, spectral ratio approach. And here for each of the target events, you find a set of smaller earthquakes. 
and then you take um, the spectral um, ratio between those, and then you will uh, uh, simultaneously then fit for the corner frequency of the larger event that you were primarily interested in and um, the smaller event. Um, the um, problem here is that for real data examples, the fit for the small event will uh, have an effect on the fit to um, larger event. In other words, you can't assume these fits are completely independent of each other. So in order to um, show this, we um, compared the um, spectral ratios for, uh, in this case, uh, these um, um, larger target events, almost magnitude three, and we looked at the smaller events that are being used for the EGF. And what we found is that the assumption of um, the corner frequency of the smaller events would actually um, change when you changed um, the target event. So the spectral ratio method is not um, self-consistent in that for each uh, target event, it's allowing um, the EGF to um, change. In other words, um, um, the path correction is not the same, which means that you can no longer then trust even um, the relative um, stress drops that you're obtaining from um, the um, spectral hot ratio um, method. And I think uh, that's what I've uh, said here, that um, you get this um, bias by the fact that you're not um, enforcing the smaller events to have the same um, corner frequencies. Okay, so what is um, the takeaway from this, it's uh, that there are all of these trade-offs that um, are um, going on that are um, essentially preventing us from getting and uh, from knowing for sure what the true source um, spectrum is. And that in any of these studies, you can trust um, the uh, relative variations much more than um, absolute um, variations. And I don't think, I mean, I um, myself uh, um, certainly did not um, fully appreciate all of these problems. Um, so there must be a um, better approach and that um, motivates what we started doing a few years ago. And that's to say, okay, well, if um, the problem is that the small earthquake stress drops or um, um, corner frequencies are unconstrained, let's add a constraint. So we uh, force the Brun um, corner frequency of the small, in this case, um, magnitude one and a half earthquakes. We just say we're going to force the corner frequency to be um, 30 hertz. So in this way, that's going to um, um, uh, um, directly uh, fix the in um, the spectral decomposition approach this ECS function. So we've by um, uh, essentially we're going to force all the magnitude one and a half to on average look the same. So we're going to try to therefore um, remove all of the spatial 
um, variations there. However, that then ensures that if we see variations in um, the larger events, that um, those are real because in some sense we um, tried to um, remove them. So if they're still there, then those must be real um, variations. So why did we choose to set the corner frequency to um, up, up, up 30 hertz? Well, this is um, a somewhat arbitrary uh, choice, but it is um, um, based on results from the Cajon Pass Borel, which provide some of um, the best constraints on what the true source um, spectrum of small events is. And, you know, if we were to change this, it would have the effect of um, moving all of the resulting um, stress drop estimates. Um, down or up, but um, the relative uh, result should still be okay. Okay, so uh, I'll kind of skip over this because it's uh, 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 complicated to explain, but the idea is that we have uh, the true or um, the source term that we want to resolve, and we find all of these small events that are um, nearby, and we see that they look like this, and we say, okay, they should look like um, this. Uh, so we're gonna force them all to be that, and um, the difference between those is then um, the ECS function, which has some degree of irregularities in it, so we smooth it, and then when we subtract that from the uh, the source term, we get uh, the ECS um, corrected source term, which we can then fit for the corner frequency. Okay, so to get back to our um, map, what I'm showing is the results of this now applied, but we're only looking at um, the magnitude more than two. Well, if you look at magnitude one and a half, you're not going to see any spatial variations because we've um, removed all those. You can see, however, that what we saw um, before is still there. This um, uh, region here in the transverse ranges has um, higher stress drops. This region in the Salton trough has lower stress drops. So we know now that this uh, is a true um, source effect because it's based on um, the relative shapes of um, the spectra of the larger events compared to um, the magnitude um, 1.5 events. So there's no way to, uh, to change um, the Q model in order to um, remove this. Uh, we see in our um, latest results that um, the stress drops are on average um, more than they were in um, the 2006 study. They are flat with um, magnitude up to about three, and then there's this um, growth. I, uh, the uh, question as to whether stress drop may grow with um, moment has been um, a longstanding controversy in seismology. So I don't have uh, um, time to talk about, but um, I want to say two things. One is that that this trend, if it's real, it uh, you can't um, continue it because then you'll get 
uh, to stress drops that are um, too large. And we know for um, the uh, larger earthquakes where we have um, true constraints on uh, their stress drops, we know um, that they don't uh, get that large. Um, but um, the other thing to keep in mind is that this trend is also um, based on the Brune model, which assumes a high frequency falloff rate of two. And it's easy to come up with results that show it being flat out to larger um, moments if you allow the high frequency falloff rate to be um, lower than two. So what um, um, uh, um, the data seem to be saying is that the larger events radiate more high frequency energy than a self-similar um, room model would uh, predict. So um, if you want to um, retain the Brune model. You have to drop the self-similarity. If you want to retain the self-similarity, then you have to drop the Brune model and allow the high-frequency falloff rate to be something like um, 1.7. Okay, now I've been um, using the term um, stress drop here, but we also should keep in mind that stress drop, these numbers are very um, model dependent. And I wanted um, to highlight this old um, Gail, Gail Atkinson um, uh, article where it, she says, uh, don't um, call it a, 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 a stress drop. She has this uh, great uh, uh, quote here. But uh, she does say it's manual in recent years has been as a um, measure of the strength of the high-frequency radiation. And I think that's uh, sort of um, key to think about this. If you want to get um, closer to the observations, the observations really are about the relative amount of um, high-frequency radiation. And then we have to make a whole lot um, of um, modeling um, assumptions to um, translate that into stress drops. So if I go back to this map, it's really a map of um, the um, high-frequency radiation. And that is why I like to use blue for um, 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 high-stress drops and red for the low-stress drops, because blue, of course, has more of the high-frequency radiation, and red has less of the high-frequency radiation. So those of you who do stress drop, studies, you should be using this scheme. And it doesn't seem to be the case where um, most people seem to like to use red for high stress drop because um, it's um, more exciting or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, blue means more high frequency um, energy. So the fundamental observation here is that earthquakes of the same um, moment um, vary a lot in their high frequency radiation. And on, you know, these, uh, there's um, scatter in that, but there are real coherent um, spatial um, um, variations. So uh, what does that mean? So if we're talking about difference in high frequency radiation, well, you know, it could indeed be due to um, the earthquake stress drop. It could just be that um, the rupture speed changes. One of the assumptions that goes into um, um, uh, 
uh, the K factor when you're going from corner fingers to stress drop involves um, the rupture speed. So lower stress drops could just be uh, lower rupture speeds. There also just could be uh, that some that the the ones that radiate more high frequency or more um, complicated ruptures. What uh, could be the cause of the spatial variations? There's sort of two main uh, uh, thoughts, I guess. One is that it has something to do with uh, the rock, in which case that what you see isn't going to evolve with time, or it could have something to do with um, the local uh, stress state in which case that you might see things uh, um, change in response to large earthquakes, just like the work um, that Gene has done to look at um, the change in um, focal mechanisms responding to um, changes in stress due to large earthquakes. And one small clue, this is also work that um, Bettina Allman did looking at um, the Parkfield earthquake that seemed to show that the areas of high frequency radiation that were there um, um, prior to the magnitude six Parkfield earthquake were still there um, following. And um, Parkfield is one of the few areas where we had a lot of um, seismicity both um, before and after the main shock. Okay, so this is my last slide. Uh, and uh, basically, all of these analyses have large uncertainties, at least for um, the absolute earthquake properties. We think now the most reliable way to do this is just to fix um, um, the corner frequency of the smallest earthquakes because it's, uh, uh, it's just too hard to uh, resolve that independently of um, knowledge of um, the Q model. But we can show now for sure that there are these uh, um, uh, hot spatial variations of high frequency energy from earthquakes. Um, I think um, the path um, forward is that um, ultimately we should drop um, the purely um, uh, 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 empirical um, um, approach. So those of us who are doing source studies should actually solve for um, Q models. Uh, in other words, don't just allow um, the path term to um, float because that um, uh, that introduces um, too many uncertainties. So I'll stop there. Thank you. All right, thank you for the, the great talk. Um, we can take some questions now. Um, so if you're, uh, we'll take questions in the room, but if you're online, please uh, raise your hand or post your question in the chat. for your high frequency radiation 
of your larger earthquakes, it, it seems like you haven't just found a variation in, in stress up. You've also kind of found a spatial variation in self similarity, right? Because if there was if everything had the same self-similarity, once you fix the smallest earthquakes to be the same, everything would similarly be the same, right? But if you have some region where you do have a self-similarity and stress drop, and then you have another region where, where you don't, then even once you've corrected the smallest magnitudes, only then would you see a, a difference in, in the stress drop of the larger events. The, the, I'm not sure that makes sense, but but it seems like you, it seems like you found something larger than just a difference in stress drop. That you found um, a a spatial difference in in how much deviation there is from from self similarity to magnitude. Does that seem right? Um, should I? Um, We're gonna try it. We'll we'll see what it's like. Okay. So yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> a good point that but it's complicated by the fact that to some extent um, um, we I dared uh, um, the true spatial variations in other words um, um Okay, great. Do we have any other questions around? Okay, go ahead. Based on the ultimate purity that those those earthquakes that occur on faults that uh, have small 
cumulative uh, displacement are ones that have uh, uh, roughness, high amplitude roughness uh, at short wavelengths, and and that uh, those that are on uh, faults that have large cumulative displacement that they are the roughness spectrum is is much smoother at short wavelengths, and and so uh, it, ultimately it it falls that falls to the differences in the uh, structure, if you will, of the source fault. Okay. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, the the giant uh rise earthquake that occurred uh, off in the J Japan trench system uh moment magnitude estimate recently 8.6 and we know that the source region uh essentially cross cuts uh seafloor spreading fault structure and uh it broke uh, uh, intact rock. And whereas the interplate thrust earthquakes with the large uh, cumulative displacement uh, lack, uh, lack the, the high amplitude, short, free, uh, short wavelength uh, rough, roughness. And uh, I, I, from your work and others, I mean, it's clear that these variations and stress drop are real. So searching for a kind of a uh, fault structure um, explanation uh, may be useful in um, the uh, small bird events as well. Uh, yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. Walter. Uh, Peter, I'd like to su suggest uh, topic, uh, take home message number four. We need more deep borehole measurements to get below the near surface Q layer. Would you buy that? Uh, yes. But you, you chose so not to. Good. You chose not to. <laughs> you chose not to emphasize that. What well, is there a reason? Well, this is, uh, you know, outside of uh, my pay grade, I guess, because the stalls are very expensive, right? So I need somebody to you know, write a proposal to, to yeah. you know, drill one of these things. All right, thank you. Um, well, we'll take a few more questions and then, then we'll uh, end the formal part of uh, the meeting. But I, I had a question thinking about that you wouldn't expect the stress drop to, you wouldn't expect the medium to be changing, so you wouldn't expect the stress drop to change. What if you had a setting where the medium did change, such as um, like an induced seismicity setting where maybe you had fluid actually uh, coming in contact with the area that could rupture hypothetically, then do you think you'd be able to tell between, you know, maybe a fault that has fluids moving through it versus one that was dry previously? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, maybe. Okay. Yeah, it would be an interesting 
I was curious, like COSO. Yeah, I was just kind of curious, like in COSO, if they hadn't produced in an area and then started producing and you had stress drops from sort of the same location, if you could see differences that were actually made Yeah, no, that might be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we have in the last analysis, you know, there are a lot of um, events at COSO that I've looked at them in the fine detail. Thank you. Okay. Uh, go ahead. Um, terrific talk, Peter. Um, conclusion two is sort of the, the most important take-home message that you're emphasizing, and that is forget about stress drops for a moment. It's a hard result that there are different regional differences in high-frequency um, um, spectral uh, amplitudes. And so the question is then, how do we decide whether it's source or path? Uh, and Walter said, you know, let's get all of the oracles to, to solve the problem. And you said, well, above my pay grade. Uh, but in Japan, there are a lot of deep orbital seismometers. And so in the studies that you and your colleagues have done, spectral and source box studies in Japan, presumably you can get around that and look only at at the borehole sliding graph. Is that right? Uh, yeah, no, that sounds good. I, I uh, you know, worked with the Japan data cells. Everybody have um, similar issues. Or... Okay, it looks like there's no questions online. So we'll take one last question from the room. I was sort of waiting for your papers with Yoshi to make an appearance at the end. Um, so I'm going to ask him about that. Your modeling work has some amazing pictures in it of how things like quantum politics that vary around the focal sphere, almost suggesting the speed of models is kind of a set of basis functions that you could use in standard large data sets to get past just looking at the average spectro of the whole data set. And is that worth trying? Is that I you know you have so much um structure in the theoretical side that doesn't make it into the data analysis side. Yes, I guess uh what um Jeff um is talking about is sort of well you know if we wanted to get um, three things out of our, out of our uh, seismograms. In other words, I was saying we could get moment, get stress drop, you wanted to get uh, hot directivity, you wanted to get some other thing. So uh, I, it, at least from my experience, it, it works maybe, you know, for above um, magnitude three or so. But when you try to get down to the smaller ones, then there's just too much scatter. If you're looking for, you want to see and um, as a mutually um, coherent sort of signal as a functional takeoff angle, but there's just so much um, scatter in these real data that it's hard. But yes, in a principle, you know, you have all the information all of these uh, terms, one can try to 
um, tease out the non uh, um, homogeneous um, terms as well. All right, with that, let's thank our speaker one last time.